the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 21st chapter. Jesus said to the people, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give, them, give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. The glory of the Lord, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. And the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In hindsight, if we all look back, though it was shockingly surreal when it happened, but with hindsight, it wasn't actually 100% shocking that things in the end came to this. Because in this nation, people had been increasingly and polarizingly picking sides and drawing lines in the sand and naming and ranting about culture wars and class wars and holy wars and race wars while all the while having no interest in the opinions of anybody on the other side of any of the wars. And that was true even more so. It was true the way lightning rods are true in this nation's capital, where ugliness had been escalating and lies that people didn't even realize were lies were now being used as rallying cries. And angry rhetoric was cozying up closer and closer to threats of violence until in the capital city, just five days before it all erupted into the violence it did, some key leaders began saying, not just privately but publicly, that this this fight for the soul of this nation was so important that if blood needed to be shed, so be it. I'm talking, of course, about our recent series of readings from Matthew's Gospel, which take place in the capital city of Jerusalem, where just the city, just the day before Jesus had entered, 
not in a motorcade but a donkeycade as crowds waved palm branches like campaign branch banners, laid garments on the road like red carpet, and shouted shouts of praise and support for this one whom they hailed as their next king who would save them from their enemies, external and internal, and this was their hope and prayer and confidence he would make this nation great again. Great like it used to be back in the days of a king like David. Instead of then hosting a political rally surrounded by these adoring fans, Jesus rather, in a reading we skipped over but we'll come back to it uh, at the end of Lent, Jesus entered the temple, the symbol and seat of power where he scattered the money changers and their money and the animals they were overpricingly selling for money, shouting, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Depending on which news channel you watched, it was either labeled as an utterly embarrassing debacle by a deranged political wannabe, or a profile in strong leadership by an outsider who'd come to Jerusalem to drain the swamp. Jesus returned to the temple the next morning, where crowds were gathered to hear him then, only then saw him interrupted by the elders and chief priests of, of the temple, who, and we've been listening in on this conversation for a few weeks, it's just all been continuing, um, they came to confront him in a scene that got quickly ugly. They accused him of being completely out of bounds, perhaps even illegally, overreaching whatever authority he thought he had and stepping on their authority in the process, he then, in the form of that parable we heard last week, accused them of being complete hypocrites who publicly did all the religious practices and rituals they could so that people who saw them would think they were really something great in the eyes not just of they themselves but also of God. But Jesus then, fact-checking them in real time, said it was all smoke and mirrors. For when it came to the things they actually did, when they weren't parading their religion around, especially what they did when it came to the needs of others, especially the needs of others most in need, the things they did and the things they left undone bore no relationship whatsoever to the desires of God. All that talk about the rich and powerful attending to the needs of those people most in need led one influential pundit uh, on a network watched by half of the people in Jerusalem derisively to dismiss Jesus as woke. Which played so well to the pundit's base that one Jerusalem politician whom everyone knew uh, had aspirations for higher office started floating a possible campaign theme for higher office, the theme being Jerusalem, where woke goes to die. Jesus alone realized that though this politician and his minions had no clue about such, the theme was in fact ironically and even almost prophetically prescient. Today's Gospel features another parable told right on the heels of that last one. It's that story of that man who owned a vineyard and leased it to tenants, which was a common thing. But he later sent slaves to collect his share of what the vineyard produced, and the tenants then had not just the uncommon but inexcusable gall to say to the owner's messengers, your share? What are you talking about? This is our vineyard. And they beat up the messengers, including brutally killing a few of them. 
So the owner, apparently not familiar with the old adage that the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and again, expecting different results, sent more slaves to gather his due, but surprise, surprise, not, the results weren't different. So then the owner, some might now say, exhibiting insanity, said, I know what I'll do, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son, he's my son. They didn't respect him, they killed him and then said to each other insanely, evilly, but also, of course, ridiculously, ha, now it's all ours. Jesus then asked his audience, so what will the owners do? The owner do to those tenants, and they, they, if you check out the context, being the religious leaders who had confronted him, they said in reply, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. That statement Jesus did not fact check because in that scenario that is surely what would have been done. What Jesus did, however, instead was to turn the facts back in their faces, telling them that the wretches in this parable were they themselves, who had been entrusted with the leadership of the people of God, but who had failed miserably, for the interests they looked out for were only the interests of they themselves personally. So God, Jesus said, is voting you out of office to give the kingdom instead to a people who will produce the fruits of the kingdom rather than the bitter stench of the toxic fruit of the stink to high heaven sinfulness of you. Tension then escalates further with Matthew's next observation that with him getting in their faces like that, they wanted to arrest him on the spot, but the crowds made that not feasible <clears throat> at that time. And though parables, of course, aren't meant to be generally understood as literally true, this particular parable is in some details pretty much literally true, both historically and prophetically. It's true historically because for centuries, the biblical prophets, the messengers that God, the owner of everything, had sent had again and again and over again been ignored and abused and in more than a few cases killed. And likewise, this parable is also true prophetically because standing right in front of their faces now was the owner's son. And though they didn't get it done that day, it was only Monday, come Thursday, Thursday night, they would seize the sun and then cast their votes come Friday to put him to a miserable death. By way of some Bible study, it's important to know that that parable's image of a vineyard that the owner expected to get some return from wasn't an image that Jesus just snatched out of thin air. It was, in fact, rather a very well-known and recurring image from the Old Testament, which Jesus here borrowed and the clearest scripture passage he read it from was our first reading for today, from Isaiah chapter 5, set some 750 years before Jesus' clash with the leaders of the religions, religious leaders of his day. Isaiah's ancient words, like Jesus' words in Matthew's Gospel, are also symbolic both historically and prophetically. Except the symbolism they're symbolic with is not the symbolism of a parable, but rather the symbolism of a song, a love song, 
Isaiah said, except it's a sad love song, which means to me, I think I need to imagine it as an old country western tune, because it's a sad song of love unrequited, love where only one of the lovers loves anymore. Isaiah sings this song, he says, on behalf of a loved one of his, who had lovingly worked to establish a vineyard. And then because vineyards take time, it's not like your garden or it's not like corn and soybeans that you plant in the spring and harvest in the fall. It takes years. And so the beloved one, on behalf of whom Isaiah the prophet says he is singing, worked and watched and worked and waited and pruned and tended and gardened and fertilized and worked for years until finally it was time to harvest the fruit. It was fruit time. That's what Matthew says. But the grapes the vineyard produced were wild. They were bitter. They were sour. They were not sweet. So said the prophet Isaiah, the owner of the vineyard, though he had lovingly invested so much into the vineyard because it did not produce the sweet fruit he loved and yearned for, decided he would let it go to waste. Indeed, it says he would even hasten the process. He would lay it waste, breaking down its protective walls and hedges and watchtowers so that it would soon be overrun. At which time the prophet Isaiah then said, O Israel, you are the vineyard. O Judah, you are God's planting. For God, your God, with so much love did plant and establish and guard and grow you. But God did that so that fruit might appear and grow the sweet fruit of justice for all and righteousness for all. He didn't use the word, but it sounds to me like Isaiah saying, wealthy, greedy, and rich, but completely self-absorbed. You are gorging yourselves on the fruits of the vineyard, while the poor all around you cry out for justice, for their share of the fruit of my vineyard, only to find themselves not just ignored, but abused and exploited and trampled upon like the grapes of your wine. He did not use the word, but he said instead, Israel, Judah, you, because of the bitter grapes of greed and injustice and lack of concern for those who concern me most, will be trampled and overrun. Which is to say, he did not use the word, but the exact thing he was saying um, would be judged as woke. Some call it a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Skeptics, of course, call it coincidence. But whatever you call it, facts are facts. Well, they used to be. And the fact is that very soon, I mean a year or two after Isaiah spoke these words, um, on behalf of God, his beloved, on behalf of the poor and the ignored and the exploited and the abused and the trampled upon whom God loved. The northern half of God's vineyard, only a year or two later, known at that time as the nation of Israel, was conquered and overrun by the Assyrians. And a century and a half later, which is a long time in our time, but an eye blink in God's time, the remaining half of the vineyard that God had planted, known at that time as the nation of Judah, was conquered and overrun and laid waste by the Babylonians. And the walls of the Judean city, which King David had made God's vineyard's capital city, Jerusalem, were destroyed. And the temple of the city, built by David's son Solomon as the dwelling place on earth for God, was destroyed. And everything in it was either plundered, torn down, or burned to the ground. 
But even so, Isaiah would say to those who had ears to hear things like promises that are more powerful even than such harsh judgment. Even so, Isaiah will go on to say the destruction of the vineyard God loved would not be the last stanza of this love story's song. For a stump would remain and there would be life in its roots. And through it, one day, visible and fully alive life would again sprout and grow, and the sweet fruits of righteousness and justice would be harvested by all for all. Which word the season of Advent would lead us to Isaiah chapter 11, which reads, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being King David's father, and a branch, a branch of life, shall grow out of these roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Which were we Christians? would lead us to the first sermon Jesus ever preached, the biblical text for which was from the prophet Isaiah, which reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And then, referring to that text, he preached a sermon that was only nine words long. It went like this, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In another sermon, not much later, he said much the same thing, but in a few more words when he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed, in other words, said Jesus, blessed by God are those whom the world too often turns not toward but from with its blessings. For blessings, blessed, he said, blessed by God, are not those at the top of the world's watchtowers, but the bottom, not those fortressed behind vineyard walls, but those kept out by walls with no walls of their own to call home. Which, if we were Christians who were Americans, would lead us not partisanly, politically, but prophetically, truthfully, to proclaim, to remind us others and to remind ourselves that if any nation on earth expects to be ongoingly blessed by God, if as Americans, for example, we are wont to pray, God bless America, land that I love, which is a fine prayer, we cannot expect God's continuing answer to our prayer for God's blessings to be, yes, yes, I will. Unless when blessed, we are also not proceeding to bear the sweet and good fruit of being and using the blessings God has given us for good, which is not just good for us, but rather good for others through us. And where shall we find them? Well, Isaiah says that God finds them by listening not to the world's boastful, but to the world's broken. Not to the world's tirades, but to its tears. And there, Midst the world's brokenness and tears, says Jesus, God sends God's Son to plant not a vineyard, but a cross.
where darkness then would be as darkness as dark can ever get, but in him light would be shining in the dark. And hate then would be as hateful as hate can get, but in him love would still be loving even when hated. And sin then would be as sinful as sin can get, but in him forgiveness then would be forgiving sinners their sins. And death then would be as dead as death can get. But come Sunday, hallelujah, there would be life. Life arisen and promising that neither darkness nor hate nor sin nor even death has what it takes to tear God's beloved from God's love. And from the stump of that cross would sprout the living vine of Christ's church which would have nothing at all, for example, against America being great or great again, but whose mission would be to bear fruit, rich fruit, the rich wine from which would make love great again. Love being the only thing there is that is great with the greatness of forever. Amen.